of the church bibles it's taken from the 32nd chapter of the prophet of isaiah beginning to read at verse 14 the fortress will be abandoned the noisy city deserted citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever the delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field and the fertile field seems like a forest. Justice will dwell in the desert and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is levelled completely, how blessed you will be, sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Let us pray. We pray about these challenging chapters tonight, written nearly 3,000 years ago, yet they echo of some of the sins and shortcomings we have today in our world and in our nation. Help us to ponder on these words and direct us to where we might need to repent and turn from our sins, both personally and as a nation. Be gentle with us and guide us back to your paths in the name of your Son, the true Messianic King, Jesus. Amen. Well, we've come to part four of uh, 11 little dips into this amazing book of Isaiah. And tonight, we're covering no less than six chapters. So I hope you brought sandwiches with you. Isaiah chapters 28 to 33. This is a tough message. Tough to prepare, and it's going to be tough to listen to, too. As this was a loud wake-up call for the nation of Judah, it challenges us, too. So, in order to not make it too much doom and gloom, I thought I would start with, some, with five fun facts about Isaiah, which surprisingly 
the previous three speakers haven't, haven't used up, so I, which I thank them for. So first of all, uh, full fact one, Isaiah had a very long ministry spanning the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So that would make it about 60 years of ministry. Fun fact two, given his intimate knowledge of the court, he probably was employed in the palace. Fun fact number three, he's reputed to have been executed on the orders of King Messiah, sorry, Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. And it's, uh, the legend goes that he was sawn in two. It's not a very nice way to go. Fun fact number four is what really surprised me is his name. His name is Yeshayahu, which uh, means the Lord is salvation, which is very close to Yeshua, which, is, uh, which we better know as jo uh, Joshua, or even Jesus, which means the Lord saves. An amazing fact number five, though, is that the whole book of Isaiah is organized just like the Bible. It's got 39 chapters about Israel and Judah, and then followed by 27 chapters with a similar new covenant message of salvation. So first of all, let's recap. At the start of Isaiah's ministry, tiny Judah and Israel were in between the empires of Egypt and Assyria. Because these small nations were a buffer between the larger powers and controlled some of the strategic trade routes, the Assyrians began to threaten these nations on their path to world domination. Now there are two options when faced with this predicament for the kings of Judah and Israel. Either political or spiritual, that is, human or divine. The defiant military option is not considered, given the overwhelming power of the Assyrians. So it was against this background that Isaiah developed, delivered his, this prophetic message to the people. But this message was very pointed to the leaders and especially the kings. The dire situation was making those leaders consider the political and strategic options. And for some reason, the spiritual was being overlooked. Hence, God raised up a prophet to speak into the situation. This week, we have the prophetic message amongst the backdrop of these events, which included backroom deals. It's a bit like a television drama. Uh, the only one I can think of with political... Uh, message was uh, yes minister but that doesn't really hold true with this this particular passage so bible's at the ready because we're going to cover all six chapters so rather than have it all read out aloud uh, all the way through all six chapters you're glad to know i'm just going to pick out a few verses so it's best to have it open in front of you at page 1099 so, woe, woe, and thrice woe. In fact, uh, I, uh, 
I count it that woe, woe, and thrice woe means five, but I count six in these chapters. Uh, so we'll roll up our sleeves and see what God is saying to the people through the prophet Isaiah. Starting with woe number one, Isaiah 28, verses one and two. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstone storm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. Now Ephraim is another name for Israel in this context. And the capital of Israel was Samaria, a city on a hill surrounded by rich farmlands. Isaiah described it as a wreath, something beautiful, prominent at the head of a fertile valley. Chapter 27 has this word to these people who had a reputation for luxury and indulgence. And now the, God, the Lord's judgment will come, overwhelmingly from foreigners. Most of this chapter paints a vivid picture of the destruction to come to Israel, not Judah. And it did in 722 BC when the Assyrians took Israel into exile. This chapter has three parts. Firstly, the message to Samaria. Then it comes closer to home with a comparison to Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And finally, a call to discern the ways of the Lord. So if Samaria falls, who's likely to be next? And a storm is coming. Well, one already here tonight. Samaria has substituted the true crown of glory. Now, perhaps Judah didn't care about their neighbor, their wayward brothers, and that, that we were about to be invaded. But hang on, weren't Judah slipping into the same sin? We need to guard ourselves and not get complacent or Death to God's warnings. Because Ephraim and later Judah didn't listen, God spoke in ways they could understand by sending the Assyrians. So what do we learn from this? Do we sometimes look with contempt to the other wayward nations or even people we know when perhaps we are not so innocent? Are we as a nation ignoring the signs are we so comfortable to notice God's warnings, signs in the planet, health service, finance, morals, pandemics, spiritual liberalism? Well, number two, we get to chapter 29, and, uh, well, that was a picture of Samaria. Chapter 29, verses 1 to 3. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me 
like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Isaiah seems to choose to avoid the, the direct names of Judah and Israel. So instead, it's David's city or Ariel for Jerusalem. Ariel means Lion of God. And this word, used to describe Jerusalem, only occurs five times in the Bible, and all of them in this chapter. So verse 1 seems to suggest that the city of David was more into festivals than fervor. They probably thought that they were above the decadence of Israel. But really, their festivals were just an excuse to indulge. Was their worship for the wrong motives? If you have any doubt of how this may displease God, then think about how Jesus condemned the hypocrisy of the Philistines. Judah can't be complacent about their wayward brother Ephraim. This prophecy outlines the first siege of Jerusalem under Hezekiah, described in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Events also detailed in Isaiah chapter 37. This second woe does have a, uh, a light at the end of the tunnel as it promises God's intervention. But I'll leave all that exciting story for next week's preacher. No spoilers here. God is quite comfortable about using the enemy against his people. But there is a future dimension too. And if we look in Zechariah chapter 14 verses 1 to 3, it seems parallel to verses 7 and 8 here in Isaiah. And given that Zechariah was writing his prophecy around 200 years later than the Assyrian siege, it must point to events to yet to come. A promise again, just at the point of defeat of Jerusalem, God will intervene. So what are the key challenges for this world? How much of our worship is ritual without heart? God sees directly into our hearts a very humbling thought. Woe number three. Oh, there's <laughs> that was my idea of uh, the, the Assyrians uh, coming to Jerusalem and uh, camping all around them. But, uh, so, uh, woe number three is also in chapter 29. Verses 15 and 16. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me, can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? I'm not so sure who this woe is specifically directed towards. And if we read about all these events in the second book of Kings, we get a picture of secret deals, allegiances, assassination, treachery, ethnic cleansing. In fact, a whole host of strategies to try and establish peace, except reliance on God 
So who knows what goes on in the world today under the banner of diplomacy? Governments provide foreign aid, but does it come with strings attached? Do we compromise on moral issues for the sake of economic benefit? So the point here is, who are we kidding if we think God doesn't see our deceit and schemes? Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Well, number four, obstinate nations. We're at chapter 30 now, verses 1 and 2. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for fair health to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. Again, we return to alliances, and this time it's directed at Judah. They were seeking help in the wrong places. Salvation comes from God alone. The sin here is spiritual blindness. Judah's, Judah's political tactics, instead of turning to God, they turned to Egypt, their old enemy. And they thought God wouldn't notice, if you look at verse 15. Ironically, God has previously used Egypt for his purposes. And we heard about one of those this morning, about Abram's uh, going to, to Egypt to escape the uh, starvation. And later, Jacob's family would do the same. And later, even still, we had Joseph and Mary that went to Egypt to escape from one of the Herods. But the strange thing here is that we see a reverse of the Exodus. To solicit the help of Egypt, Ahaz takes temple treasures to buy protection. But to avoid the Philistine bandits stealing it on the way, they avoid the direct route and take the Negev Desert Way instead. But this time, not led by the Lord or by his angel. But God is faithful to his word. He will spare David's city this time. And Tophelt is reserved for the king of Assyria. Tophelt, in verse 33, is the fiery rubbish tip in the valley of Himnon where we get the word Gehenna, translated in the New Testament into hell. So incidentally, the other word often used is Sheol, which was the destination for the king of Babylon, which we came across in Isaiah chapter 14. So it looks like the kings of Assyria and Babylon won't even get the pleasure of each other's company in hell. The key woe here, though, is planning to get help from Egypt, which is a rejection of God. Using God's temple treasures for insurance. So the point here is, could this be some form of backsliding? Why would we even consider an alliance with an old enemy? Once we experience the salvation of God, why would we look anywhere else? 
So woe number five, those who rely on Egypt were in chapter 31, help one. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. The previous woe was more about how they didn't trust God's direction for what they should do. But what we have here now is them thinking that Egypt would be their strength. But are we starting to pick up a picture of God's displeasure for allegiances with Egypt? Trusting in help from men rather than God. So this chapter points out three things wrong with the people. Firstly, in verse 1, they have abandoned their faith. They did not look to God. Secondly, in verse 2, they overlooked the truth. They even questioned God's wisdom. And thirdly, in verse 3, they ignored common sense. The Egyptians and their horses are just flesh and blood and not spirit. This was the major mistake of Solomon, who you agree is credited as being wise, yet even in Jewish thing of turning to Egypt for horses, expressly forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and even marrying Pharaoh's daughter and other wives who turned him from true worship. You can see all that in 1 Kings chapter 11. So the general point here is that God doesn't want us to abandon common sense. But let us be informed. Let's read the Bible and encourage one another of the greatness of our God. When we have that faith in the almightiness of God, why would we go elsewhere? Isn't that common sense? How much do we lean on our own strength or that of those we perceive as strong when we should rely on God? Now, we get a short pause from all the woes and potentially words of comfort in chapter 32. So I'm going to read 32 verses 1 to 3. Have I gone too far? Ah, there we go. I put them in the wrong order. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. I'm so glad there's a pause and we get some encouraging words against these challenging passages. A king is coming, whose qualities are righteousness and justice. This description does not ring true with the kings of Judah and Israel around the time of Isaiah. A messianic age is predicted. However, in the second half of chapter, from verse 9 onwards, it seems to sound a note of caution and appears to be directed to the women of Jerusalem. They are complacent. They have security, food, and clothes. 
but there is a time coming when the city would be unfruitful and desolate. So the challenging point here is beware of complacency. Material blessings do not often help us see the truth of our spiritual situation. And finally, have I got, got them in the wrong order? Ah, there we go. Woe number six. Woe to you, destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer, you have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. This final woe is directed at God's instrument of destruction, the Assyrians. I guess it isn't so much of a prophecy as I'm sure the Assyrians wouldn't be listening to Isaiah. But it is a reassurance to all God's people that Assyria too will get their comeuppance. God did not use another nation to inflict a defeat on the Assyrians, but did it with an angel. Come next week for some spectacular fulfillment of this prophecy. How were the Jews going to break out of this relentless cycle of disobedience and rejection of God? The ship will finally make port, albeit battered. God will deliver. So the general point here is that despite what happens, God will deliver in the end. Although it looked like the ship might sink, the Lord will bring it through the storm. Possibly quite pertinent tonight. And we look forward to the reign of the messianic king. I like the verse 22 where it says, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. So in conclusion, we can read these these passages assuming that it is pointed to the leaders and politicians who scheme and place their faith in alliances of military might. In these days of democracy, how much can we do to challenge those in authority to take the righteous and just ways? I prepared some challenging questions for those home groups covering uh, these chapters to consider our responsibilities as followers of God. Looking into issues such as global warming, liberal spiritual views, and other thorny topics. But I believe the principles in these chapters are not just for the kings and leaders. They are for us all. Where do we our trust? Let me finish with Isaiah, going back to chapter 12, verses 4 to 6, as a final prayer. Let us pray. In that day you will say, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud, 
and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Amen.